The following message is from the audio ministry of Coastal Community Church. We trust you'll find it helpful and encouraging. Now, here's Pastor Chris Rollins. Welcome again to uh, Coastal Community Church. I am Pastor Chris. You know, what in the world was I thinking last Sunday, talking about David and Goliath, and I made the statement that, you know, everybody loves rooting for an underdog until they beat your team. And, uh, you know, I can take it. My team got beat. We lost, but the uh, season's not over yet. Good, good news is today we're talking about how to respond when, when uh, you're in a, in, in a pit, uh, in a cave. So uh, anyway, hey, a couple of things real quick. Um, today, immediately after the second service, uh, we're having what we call our newcomers reception uh, here at Coastal. And uh, so it'll probably be about 12, somewhere between 1230, 1240, um, right over in the conference room in the Coastal Kids building. And uh, there'll be signage out front, kind of letting you know where to go. But if you're new to Coastal, it's a great next step. And even if you haven't signed up yet, but you're new here today and you'd like to come and check it out, uh, it's for 30 minutes. We'll feed you pizza. If you got kids, we'll take care of them. Uh, you'll meet our staff, you'll hear a little bit about our story, and uh, we'll talk about some possible next steps. It's just a great uh, kind of initial way uh, to get plugged in here at Coastal to learn a little bit more about us and get to meet some other people. So it's a lot of fun. And uh, later, uh, during our offering, uh, Scott's going to come and talk about Operation Christmas Child as, again. Uh, the month of October is Operation Christmas Child Month. And I want to encourage you next Sunday, when you come to church, uh, bring some gifts with you, uh, ready to, uh, uh, to be packed in a shoebox for Operation Christmas Child. So when you come to church, this week while you're shopping you know, Walmart, dollar store, wherever. Uh, buy some gifts and bring them with you next Sunday or bring some money uh, ready to give uh, to Operation Christmas Child. And uh, Scott's gonna talk about our goals and what we're gonna be doing later for that. Um, I want you to do me a favor. Everybody kind of put on your uh, imagination caps this morning. And I want you to imagine for a moment uh, that you are a passenger on a four-engine jet airplane. You're traveling along through the sky, everything's going great, when all of a sudden you hear the pilot's voice come over the intercom saying, those of you on the left side of the plane may have noticed that one of our engines has failed. No need to be alarmed. This plane is completely capable of flying safely with three engines, but we'll probably arrive about 15 minutes later to our destination. A few minutes later, the pilot's calm voice comes on again. Those of you on the right side of the plane may have noticed that a second engine has failed. Again, no need to be alarmed. We can make it fine on two engines. Although now we will probably be running about 30 minutes late. A few minutes later, the pilot speaks to the passengers once more. Ladies and gentlemen, I am sorry to inform you that a third engine has failed. Again, no need to be alarmed. We can make it to the airport safely on one engine, although now we will be arriving approximately 45 minutes late. At this point, one passenger turns to another and says, man, I sure hope that fourth engine doesn't go out or we're going to be up here all night long. <laughs> now, a story like that makes for a pretty lame joke, but, um, and you can bet that if that happened to any of us, nobody would be laughing, right? Uh, because when you're flying, your security literally depends on the functioning of those engines. Well, just as a passenger's sense of security is wrapped up in the proper functioning of those engines, sometimes our sense of security, our identity, who we are, our value is wrapped up, is tied to, is linked 
to different things. You know, things like your job, your family, uh, your relationships, your friends, your, your health, your position. And you can become very, very secure in those things. And sometimes what happens is that your happiness and even your relationship with God becomes very dependent on those things, sometimes even good things. And that can become a problem. Listen, ultimately, God wants you to find your security, your identity, your value in him. And the real test comes when all those other things fail you. The test comes when all those things are are stripped away or taken away. Will you still love God when they're gone? Will you still love him when you lose your job? Will you still worship him when you don't hold that same position? When something, a relationship is gone? Will you still be secure in who you are? And those things can happen in an instant. In fact, it happened to David. Uh, up to this point, we know that uh, David's been on a roll. If you've been with us so far, you know, things have been going great for this guy. I mean, when we last left David uh, last week, man, everything is awesome. Uh, he killed Goliath. Uh, he becomes a national hero and as a reward for killing the giant. We didn't really talk a lot about this last week, but he married Michal, who is King Saul's daughter. Pretty good reward, right? He gets the hand of the princess. And then get this, on top of that reward, he is forever exempt from paying taxes. Wow, I mean, think about that. Which one would you take, princess no taxes, right? Some of you, ah, okay, anyway. So, I mean, David's on top of his game. They even wrote a new hit song um, about, in Israel about him. All the young girls in the kingdom, in fact, the Bible says, were singing this song. According to the Bible, the lyrics were, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. I mean, everybody loved this guy. He's on the cover of every magazine. Nothing could go wrong for him. And then suddenly, without warning, the bottom falls out. 1 Samuel 18, verse 15. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. King Saul becomes insanely jealous. And he's got all kinds of subjects around him who are willing to do whatever he tells them to do. And guess what he tells them to do? 1 Samuel 19, 1. Saul now urged his servants and his son to assassinate David. And so like for the next five or six chapters of the Bible, what you're seeing is David constantly on the run. I mean, just running, running, running. And every time David has got to flee, has got to escape, what happens is he leaves more and more behind until he's got absolutely nothing left. He is stripped of everything. All of his props, all of his security, all of his support, everything that it was possible that he was leaning on is now gone from his life. Think about some of the things that that David lost. The first thing he lost was his position. His position. In verse 5 of chapter 18, whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander in his army, an appointment that was applauded by the fighting men and officers alike. But then, uh, because of his jealousy, not only did Saul send some spies to try to assassinate David, Twice, Saul himself tried to kill him by his own hands by throwing a javelin at him. 
So he lost his job, his income, his security. Some of you in this room can relate to that, right? You've lost a job. The next thing he loses is his partner, uh, his wife. Again, David was married to Michal, Saul's daughter. And uh, during one of the assassination attempts, uh, Saul's daughter actually helps David escape, sending him out a back window. And when dad hears about it, he is absolutely furious. And he grabs his daughter and says, hey, why did you help David escape? She lies to her dad and says, well, he forced me to. Uh, He said he was going to kill me if I didn't do it. And so that makes Saul even more angry. And he gives his daughter, Michal, to another man to be his wife. So David loses his family. Again, there's some of you here in this room who can relate to that. Next, he loses his mentor, his prophet. Uh, You can tell um, I'm a preacher. These all start with the letter P. But um, the Bible says that when David escapes this time, he flees to a town called Ramah where Samuel, uh, his spiritual mentor, lived. And uh, Samuel, you remember, he's the guy uh, a couple of weeks ago, remember, we talked about this when uh, David was anointed in the first place. That was the one, he was the prophet who anointed David. And uh, Samuel is the one in David's life who always assured him of God's presence. Now, when he reaches Samuel, he says, Samuel says, okay, I know where we can go uh, to escape Saul. Let's go to the city of of Naoth and uh, we'll, we'll be safe there. But the Bible says that Saul had spies there too. And uh, they spot David, so David's on the run again. But at this point, Samuel's kind of an old guy and uh, not able to be on the move like David, so he, David leaves him behind. And then soon after that, Samuel dies. So he's lost his job, he's lost his wife, he's lost his mentor. Next, he loses his pal, his best friend, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan was the one person in the world that David knew that he could trust. And uh, Jonathan even stood up to his own dad and risked his life for him. But in the end, Jonathan wasn't able to leave the palace and raise a sword against his own father. So David had to run once again. Now he's got nothing left. Well, maybe he had one thing, but he's about to leave that, lose that as well. His own personal dignity. You know, he's thinking, man, where in the world am I going to go now to get away from the king? And 1 Samuel 21.10 tells us, So David escaped from Saul and went to King Achish of Gath. Now, that's significant. Anybody remember who's from Gath? Goliath. That's exactly right. Goliath uh, was from the city of Gath. And so David, get this, he is sunk to the point where he's got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, other than with his mortal enemies, the Philistines. And so he starts to think to himself, well, you know, this is the last place Saul would ever look for me, so I'll just disguise myself and I'll sneak into the city. And so David does that. But somebody recognizes him. They say, hey, you know, that's the giant killer. And so they run to go tell the king. So here's David, he's trapped. He's in a fortified city. He hears them coming. He is surrounded. There is no way for him to to escape. So what's he going to do? He comes up with a pretty pretty interesting strategy. Uh, 1 Samuel 21, verses 12 and 13. David hears these comments and was afraid of what King Achish might do to him. So 
he pretended to be insane. Listen to this. Scratching on the doors, drooling down his beard. I mean, you talk about hitting rock bottom. I mean, this is David, right? I mean, he's the giant killer, the celebrity, the man about whom they're writing songs about. And here he is acting nuts, acting crazy. But the strategy actually works. Verses 14 through 15, listen to this. Finally, King Achish said to his men, must you bring me a madman? Now listen to this, this says a lot, this is funny. We already have enough of them around here, you know? Like I'm surrounded by nut jobs, I don't need another one. And so they take him out to the wilderness and they let him go like a dog, like a wild animal. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. I mean, here's David. He was expecting a palace and he winds up in a cave in the wilderness. You know, David's the anointed one. Uh, you know, in, in fact, I mean, think about it from David's perspective. Being king, you know, it wasn't his idea. You know, it wasn't something that he went after or pursued. It was God's idea. And, you know, up until that point, he'd been living a pretty peaceful life. I mean, sure, his family wasn't the greatest family. They kind of ignored him. But, hey, that was okay. He got to live out in the, you know, quiet green pastures. And then one day, Samuel shows up and says, you know what, David? You're God's chosen one. And then he slays the giant. And then just as quickly, everything goes downhill. I mean, he had fame, he had fortune, he had friends, family. He had a guaranteed future. And then just like that, it is all gone. I mean, David had to be feeling like, okay, God, you know, Thanks for being on my side and all, but with friends like you, who needs, you know, you you know. So, where does David wind up? He winds up in a cave. You know, there's no other place to go, so he crawls up into a cave, and he just sits there in the dark. Can you imagine how that must have felt? Well, the reality is we don't have to imagine. He actually wrote at least two psalms while he was in a cave. Psalm 142 and Psalm 57. And what I want us to do today with the time that remains is I want to look at these two psalms and I want to see how David handled his time in the cave. How he responded, what he did. Because I think there are some of you here today that are in a cave. You see, a cave is where you end up when all your props, all your support, everything that has been holding you up gets stripped away. Today we call that hitting rock bottom. Now again, here's the truth. About a third of you in this room are in a cave right now. You're in a vocational cave. You know, if you've lost your job. You're in a financial cave. You know, you're you're in debt up to your eyes. A a relational cave, a a relationship that you've depended on is now uh, on the rocks or is gone. Another third of you are coming out of a cave and you're still reeling from it. 
And about a third of you are headed into one and you're not sure what to do. So I want to talk about what David did and give you some hope today and some encouragement. Listen to these words written by David while he was in a cave. Psalm 142, verses 4 and 5. I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit about what happens to me. Man, can you feel the despair and the loneliness in these words? And then to make matters worse, David crawls into this cave to be all alone, you know, and look what happens to him next. 1 Samuel 21, 2. Then others began coming. Men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented until David was the leader of about 400 men. Now, when you're in a cave at first, you don't want to be around other people, especially messed up people, right? Especially other high-maintenance people. But look who comes into the cave with him. In fact, the Hebrew word there for in trouble means under great pressure. So here comes several hundred stressed-out people. And then the Hebrew word for debt literally means to have a number of creditors. So every one of these people who called, crawled into the cave with David got people chasing after them as well. And then the Hebrew word for discontented means to be in bitterness of soul, to have been wronged or mistreated, uh, to be bitter and whiny about it. So imagine, just when you think nothing can get any, get any worse, it does. I mean, this is awful. David has gone through this downward spiral, and he just wants to be alone. He feels like a worm, and then four other worms join him. All those who are in trouble, in debt, discontented. Sounds like the you know, Statue of Liberty, doesn't it? Basically. And then David spends several years with these people. Basically just moving from cave to cave. Now, later we find out these become David's mighty men. I think it's a foreshadowing of the church, actually. How God draws people to himself in their discontent and he lifts them up. But eventually, David and these men and their families, they establish kind of a refugee community. Um, in a village called Ziklag. And uh, they're getting married, they're having kids, they're raising families. And then they would kind of go out, kind of like, imagine like Robin Hood's merry men, and uh, they would fight uh, the enemies of the nation of Israel. One day they come back from one of these excursions and um, they discover that their, their village had been burned to the ground. And their wives and their children had all been taken captive. And 1 Samuel 30, verse 4 says that David and his men wept until they could weep no more. Ever cried like that? When you just feel like you've cried until there are no tears left. Again, sounds like rock bottom. Sounds like it's pretty bad. In fact, what you're seeing is that David thinks he's at rock bottom and then the bottom drops and it goes even further. Verse six says, David was now in serious trouble because his men were very bitter about losing their wives and children and they began to talk of stoning him. Wow. Again, here's David, a fugitive from his own country. His own king trying to kill him. His mentor's dead. The Philistines don't trust him. The refugee village that they've been living in is now gone. His best friend is gone. And this little merry band of brothers is ready to kill him. He's got no one to turn to. Finally, he is truly at rock bottom. 
and everything in his life that he might have depended on has been stripped away. In other words, I think God's got him right where he wants him. You know, this is why David is a man after God's heart. In fact, look at the end of verse 6. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Listen, you know, it's wonderful to be encouraged by other people. I mean, it is a great, great thing to come here on Sunday mornings and to be encouraged and strengthened as we worship together. I mean, it's great to, you know, read a book or listen to a song that stirs your heart. But when you're in a cave and there's no one left to turn to and there's nothing left to depend on, that's where you discover who truly has your heart. And in these two Psalms, David reveals who has his heart and he gives us some encouragement and some secrets, I think, to surviving and thriving when you hit rock bottom, when you're in a cave. Let's talk about it. Number one, I need to release my concerns to God. I need to release my concerns to God. In other words, just let it loose. Pour out your heart to God. Tell him how you feel. Uh, David doesn't hold back. Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2. I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. I pour out my complaints before him, and I tell him all my troubles. Now, let me take a little quick survey here this morning, quick show of hands. How many of you raise your hand? Raise your hand seriously if you know how to complain. Raise your hand. You know how to complain. Now, raise your hand if you have the spiritual gift of complaining, or uh, maybe you have a teenager who does, or a spouse. No. Um, Listen, if you can complain, you can do this first step. You can release your concerns to God. David says, I pour out my complaints to the Lord. One translation says, I lift up my voice. That literally means I turn up the volume. I shout, I scream, I pour out my complaint before him. That means to whine, to gripe, to grieve. Listen, not only do we see this level of honesty and frankness with God in David, but I think we also see it in Jesus. God's one and only son as he, hang, as he hung on the cross and he died for your sins and mine and he cried out, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, if David could do it, if Jesus could do it, you and I can do it. Man, you need to hear this today. Your honesty doesn't shock God. You know, your honesty doesn't offend him. In fact, you ready for this? That's what he wanted all along. He wants a relationship. You know, stop pretending everything is fine when it's not. That's not maturity, that's, that's denial. Instead, pour out your heart to God. Release it to him. Number two, Recognize my powerlessness. Recognize my powerlessness. Anybody who's ever been a part of any kind of recovery program knows how important this is. I've got to admit it. I've got to admit my powerlessness to control my tendency to do the wrong thing. I've got to admit that my life in and of itself 
is unmanageable. Again, listen to what David wrote in the cave. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, because they are too strong for me. Ever feel like that? Ever feel like you can't handle everything that's been thrown at you? Guess what? You're right. You're right. And you're not alone. That's how David felt. I mean, again, here's the giant killer. Here's the national hero. He's saying, you know what? This is too tough for me. I can't handle it. But you're right where God wants you at that point. The good news is your powerlessness, you're admitting that, leads to God's, the demonstration of God's power. Listen, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, kind of a trite Christian saying, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you need. But the truth is, you'll never really know that. You'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you've got. That's why caves are good from time to time. That's why hitting rock bottom is good. Getting stripped away of all your crutches is, is good if, if those supports, if those relationships, if those jobs, if they have become substitutes for God. And I think that's what God was wanting to see with David. Would he turn to him? Number three. Rest in God's care. Rest in God's care. Here's what I mean. You know, a big mistake we tend to make when when, uh, things are out of control is we try harder to control them. (laughs) Um, David finally did not. Verses 4 and 5, I have no refuge, no one cares. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. You are the portion, my portion in the land of the living. And then in Psalm 57, verse 1, also written in a cave, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I want you to do me a favor. If you're taking notes this morning on your outline, I want you to circle the four times the word refuge appears in those words, in those verses. It's a great, great word. When you're in a cave, what you usually want is for God to be your warrior, to go out and be, you know, your war, the warrior on your behalf, to do battle for you, or you want him to be your judge, to avenge the wrong that you've suffered. But sometimes what God knows you really need is just a refuge, a safe place to go and rest and hide. And I think David finally came to the realization that there was nothing that he could do. It really was completely out of his control. He couldn't change Saul's mind. He couldn't change the the army's orders. He didn't have the power to change his circumstances. So he decided finally, you know what? I'm just going to rest in the refuge of God. He is stripped of absolutely everything. His rank, his power, his prestige, his position, relationships, everything. And so finally, he relaxed in the care of God. Of God. You remember the story um, from 2010 about those uh, 33 miners who were trapped underground in that collapsed mine 
in Chile. They were trapped underground about a half a mile below the surface. Uh, the mine that they had been working in was over 100 years old, and the company that they were working for actually had a long, terrible track record of fines and safety violations, including the deaths of eight miners 12 years prior to this cave-in. The 33 miners trapped underground, they were there for so long that most people thought they were absolutely dead. In fact, the company that ran the mine actually put up 33 white crosses at the site because they had already given up on them. But there was one person who was committed to continue looking for them. You know who it was? It was the president of Chile. He kind of took over the reins of the search and rescue operation from the cash-strapped mining company, and he pledged all the available resources within his country to try to find and reach those miners. He uh, personally contacted a, an American drilling company, and they dug eight exploratory holes in the ground in an attempt to reach the areas where they believed possibly the miners might have found shelter if, if any of them were still alive. Well, 17 days after the cave-in, they pulled one of the drill bits back out of the ground and up to the surface, and they found a note attached. And written in bold red letters were these words, we're safe in the shelter, 33 of us. The nation of Chile erupted in a wave of euphoria, and then a global rescue effort was mounted. More than a dozen multinational corporations from nearly every continent uh, added their resources to the expert, expertise of NASA. Uh, more holes were dug. A torpedo-shaped capsule was lowered into the earth. After 69 days of being trapped underground in a cave, one by one, all 33 of the miners were rescued. You know who was standing at the top of the hole to embrace every single one of them as they emerged to freedom? It was the president of Chile, standing there in a white hard hat. And when the last miner was raised to the surface, the, uh, the rescue paramedics held up a sign that was seen by an estimated one billion people watching live on TV and on the internet. And the sign simply said, mission accomplished. When the miners reached the surface, there was this huge national celebration and each one of the miners became a national hero. And uh, they were lavish with all kinds of uh, wonderful gifts, an all-expense-paid trip to a Greek island, uh, trips to Madrid and London and the Holy Land. In fact, what's funny was that each one of them were given a trip to Memphis, Tennessee, of all places. You know where they went? Graceland. <laughs> Graceland. You know why? One of the miners in an interview shared that he was an Elvis fan. And uh, the really awesome thing about this whole story, though, is how these miners just couldn't stop shouting for joy, giving God the glory, just telling anybody and everybody who would listen how ultimately it was God who rescued them. As I think about those cave dwellers, I am struck by how it parallels our own spiritual condition. 
You know, like those miners, each of us was in a cave, spiritually. And no matter how good we were, there was absolutely nothing you could do to rescue yourself. And just like them, the only way you could be set free was because of somebody else reaching down to you. And listen, that is exactly, my friend, what Jesus did for you. Jesus left all the glory of heaven and he came down to rescue each and every one of us. And just like them, following that rescue, unbelievable riches were lavished on all of us. The president, not of the country, but of the universe, has embraced you and welcomed you. And best of all, he promises to take you to Graceland. I don't know what cave you're in right now. Maybe it is a cave of great, great disappointment or discouragement. Maybe you are in a cave of addiction or even death. Whatever it is, what you need to know is that the same God who is right there with David, he'll be there for you too. Now, how do I know that today? Because God's one and only Son became a cave dweller for you and for me. Man, don't you get it? 2,000 years ago, he stepped into a cave. And death and sin could not contain him. And he rose from the dead and he is alive. And he did that for you. And he did that for me. Listen, release it. Pour out your heart to God. He is not offended. He is not shocked. Just recognize your powerlessness. Just admit your sin. And then finally, rest in God's grace. Come to him for shelter. He is ready to give it to you if you'll just reach out to him. He has already reached down to you. He's just waiting on you to take that one step of faith. And no matter what cave you find yourself in, he's ready to rescue you. He'll do that today if you'll let him. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as you scan this room today, you are well aware of the hearts of everyone in this room. And you know where they find themselves today. And there are many who find themselves in a cave. And they come here and maybe they, you know, dress up enough and and look the part and smile. But deep down inside, God, they are hurting. They are lonely and they are afraid. Listen, you came to the right place on the right day. God wants to rescue you. He has already provided the way out. Pour out your heart to him. Here and now, just say, Dear Heavenly Father, God, I am in a cave and I want to come home. I need to be rescued. And I admit it, God, I've made a mess of things. Today, I believe I believe that your son Jesus went to a cross for me. 
I believe that he stepped into a cave, into a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the dead and he is alive. God, I believe that. With all my faith and all my trust, I put it in him and him alone. No longer in my own goodness, in my ability to earn anything. It's all been stripped away, God, and I depend totally and completely on him. And now, God, for the rest of my days, I simply want to follow Jesus. I want to become more and more like you see me now today, forgiven, brand new, rescued, and set free. Thank you, Father. Thank you. And God, I pray for Coastal. May we be a church that is constantly reaching out to those that are around us, those who find themselves in caves. And may we point them to Jesus, the great rescuer. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Pastor Chris Rollins of Coastal Community Church. For more information about Coastal or to explore what your next step of faith might look like, check us out online at coastalcommunitychurch.org. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, thanks for listening.